Samuel 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people that day, the king, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. All the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today, for you have made it clear today, sorry, that to the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise. Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all of the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word that is good, that is true, that never fails. We thank you that you are faithful and good and loving. We pray now that as we hear these words and we hear um, what is presented today and as we go um, to the table uh, for communion, Lord, that you will just humble our hearts, uh, help our minds to focus, that we may hear you today and that we may honor you and glorify you in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. It's another chance for us this morning to gather together as his church to hear his word, the privilege of being able to read his word, the words of God to us, to learn from them, to let him speak to us. And so even though it's Mother's Day, we're going to still go through 2 Samuel. We're going to work our way through that as usual. Uh, that it all applies to us, not just mothers. It applies to children, it applies to fathers. Any of us who are God's people, we can hear these words and be encouraged by it, find joy in the midst of it, uh, for God is going to teach us through that. So one interesting thing, I would say, one truth, maybe I should say, in life, which sometimes is hard for us to hear and to live out, uh, is to understand that our emotions are very powerful things. If you ever uh, hear a song and it brings back a nostalgic memory of past days and you remember it, it creates this emotion in you. Uh, or uh, I had a, a friend who told me that he was moving out of state to a rural community. It brought me back to going back to South Dakota, maybe miss South Dakota and, and the horizon and the slowness of life and growing up and remembering all those things and that created this emotion in me. Emotions are powerful things. They can affect us both in a positive way and 
in a negative way. Specifically as God's people, emotions can be positive, strengthening and stirring us into godly action. But emotions can also be negative, causing us anxiety or complacency, paralyzing us from doing godly actions. And David's emotions in this passage this morning, considering what he's been through, they're a bit high. They're a bit high. He's suffered a grievous loss in the battle to retake the throne. His son Absalom's death throws him into what can only be called deep despair. He's walking around with a loud voice for everyone to hear, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And this blinds him, this deep despair blinds him to everything and everyone around him. And whether his actions are simply of a father who lost a son or guilt knowing that all the horrific events leading up to this moment stem from his son with Bathsheba years earlier, the loss of Absalom is too great for David. He can't bear it. His despair is overwhelming him. But the reality is, is that David is more than a father. He's also a king. He's the king, the anointed king of the Lord over God's people, Israel. And as king, his actions and his emotions have an effect on the people. You put it this way, if you go into your house, and let's just say mothers, it's mothers. If you're having a bad day and you've got kids and you are cranky, how does that affect your kids? How does it affect family? Or if you're just going to work and you are in a really bad mood or you're in a really good mood, it affects the people around you. Don't go to mom today. Just avoid her. She's in a bad mood. And just suffer on your own and we'll deal with it later, right? I mean, it, it affects the people around. How much more so the king of a nation? David's actions specifically in this passage and his emotions actually have a demoralizing effect on the people. It should have been a time of great celebration. They just won a victory over overwhelming odds. Remember, Absalom's army is as great as the, the, the sand on the seashore and David's got a few thousand. Okay, it, it doesn't look good for David and yet he won. His army defeated them, uh, Absalom's army. The usurper is dead. The usurper's army is defeated and scattered. The rightful king is restored. Peace is once again ready to reign in Israel. But instead of being joyful, the people are demoralized. Instead of entering the city, marching proudly in triumph, the army enters as if it's ashamed of their victory, as if they'd fled the battlefield out of cowardice, and now they're ashamed to show their faces in public. And it all stems from David. He should have been at the head of the column of his army, but instead he's in the chamber above the gate. He's weeping and mourning uncontrollably. It's in times like this that sometimes we need to hear the painful truth. This is where David is at. 
Now, this may sound harsh, but David's grief has blinded him to his greater responsibility and duty as the anointed king of the Lord's people. Joab, with all of his flaws, and oh, they have been many and they will be many, as we will find in the coming chapters, Joab understands David's in the wrong here. And so he takes the brave step of rebuking David. Many of David's servants have given their lives to restore David to the throne. Many have suffered greatly out of love for the king, but David's grief for Absalom has brought shame upon those who, are, who have endured and gave so much for their king. Yes, David lost a son, and that's terrible. But it was a wicked son who desired not only David's throne, but David's life. He wanted his dad dead. And if later situations in Israel are a litmus test, Absalom's, Absalom would have not stopped at David's life. His wives, his concubines, all his children, those who were most loyal to him, they would more than likely have all been killed too. So in other words, winning the battle not only saved David's life, but it saved his royal line from being destroyed. God worked all that David would be king and so that his son would one day take the throne after David's death. God worked so that his promises would be fulfilled. And David at the moment does not see it. He's blind. He's blinded by his grief and his emotions. And if that's not enough to shake David, Joab adds, and I think this is the key to the verse, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. This is the key verse in the chapter. You would rather we be dead and Absalom alive because we are nothing to you. Not the best counseling strategy, right? But David needs to hear it. Joab gets in his face and says, we are nothing to you. That is what you are communicating to us as your people. And he calls David to step up to the plate. And then it adds a bit of a a threat at the end. He says, get up and speak kindly to the people. Do your job. Do your duty as king. Show them that your love for them is greater than for that wicked usurper Absalom. Because if you don't, the men of the army are going to abandon you. And this last statement seems to be that veiled threat that Joab himself would lead the army in a rebellion against David. Get up and do your duty or I'm going to grab the army and you're going to have another battle on your hand, but you'll be by yourself and I will lead it against you. And thankfully, it works. Joab, again, with all of his issues, was the voice of reason in David's life. That's how low David had stooped in that moment. He was the voice, Joab was the voice who bravely rebuked the king, rightfully rebuked the king for his failures. And in typical David form, the blinders fell from his eyes, And though he was still sorrowful and still mourning and still grieving, David took his place at the city gate. Now that's, it's an important, it's an important statement. The gate was the place in the city where important matters took place. If you look at 
biblical history. It is where Boaz, Ruth and Boaz, if you read the book of Ruth, Boaz, David's great-grandfather, actually, that's where he redeems Ruth, is at the city gate. It's where business took place. It's where major decisions happened in public. It's also where Absalom won the hearts of the people of Israel to have them stray from David. And now it's where David goes to meet with his people. Now remember, this is not taking place in Jerusalem yet. This is still in Mahanium. He's still in the stronghold. And those who were loyal to him are still there. He hasn't gone to Jerusalem. That, That comes in a bit. But he goes down to the gate to his people, to those who were loyal to him. Instead of weeping and mourning by himself above the gate, he's at the gate, giving his judgments to his people. He's meeting with them. He's seeing with them. He's in, in, uh, seeing them. He's, in being, he's encouraging them. In other words, he's being the king that he's supposed to be. The anointed king has been restored to his rightful place. And in doing so, the shame of the people is reversed. Now, we've seen throughout the book of Samuel how the Lord's anointed king, David, He's a type of Christ. He points us to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, the true and perfect anointed king of the Lord. But David, he's a type of Christ, but he's also, as we said, an anti-type of Christ, which still, even in that, is pointing us to the true Messiah, just in a negative way. Negative, not negative as in like evil, but negative as in a way that shows that Jesus is a greater and better anointed king than David. And this passage does both, positive and negative. So first, though Christ suffered grievously, he never lost sight of the final goal of his suffering. He never lost, he never lost sight of what his duty was as king, whereas David did. Like David, Jesus suffered grievously. He was betrayed by a close friend, abandoned by his followers, beaten and whipped, a crown of thorns, was placed on his head, and he was hung on a cross like a criminal. Yet, all of this is nothing compared to the weight of our sins, which was brought upon him. And the full wrath of God for those sins was placed upon his shoulders. David's suffering, as deep and grievous as they were, were nothing compared to what Christ suffered. And yet, though Jesus suffered grievously, he never lost sight of what his final goal was, what the duty as king, what his duty was as king. And that is not to save the people. Is that shock? Can I say that? Do you know that? The final goal of Jesus dying on the cross was not saving me from my sins. It happened, thank goodness, but praise God for that. His ultimate reason for dying on the cross was to glorify God, to glorify Him. On the night that He died, or the night before He died, Jesus said these words to His disciple at the Last Supper. He anticipated His crucifixion. This is what He's talking about dying on the cross. This is what he says in John 13, 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, that is, 
on the cross. Now is he going to be glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What's the one word that you hear all the time? Glory. In other words, it's really, really fancy way of saying Jesus went to the cross so that he could die for the glory of God. So when people look at Jesus, they say God is glorious. And in glorifying the Father, Jesus, who is God, will then be glorified. The primary purpose of the cross was to bring glory to God. To glorify is to praise, to point others to the greatness and beauty and the power of God. We go to, we go to a, a wonderful concert. Oh, it was glorious. We go to, oh, let's go to mountains. And you, you see a, a majestic mountain range and there's just this glory that's in it. And you go, oh, you got to go here and you got to see this sight. Look how beautiful it is. Look how glorious it is. This is what the cross accomplished. For Christ's suffering reveals God's love and his salvation to his people, the church. Our adoption as his children through Christ, despite our sinful rebellion against him, creates a growing desire in us to proclaim his greatness, his beauty, and his power to anyone who will listen. To make it maybe a little bit more personal, this is, if you're not married, I'm hoping that you understand this. Or maybe as a child to, to think of um, your parents and how much they love you. A good, godly, wonderful parent or a good, godly, loving spouse loves you despite your failings. All of us have made mistakes. All of us have disobeyed our parents at one point in our life. Even if your parents are gone when you were younger, guaranteed. If you think that you did not disobey your parents, you just lied, which means you disobeyed your parents in a way. So we've all made mistakes. And a good, loving parent loves us despite that. As a, as a husband, I know my failings. I know how much I fail to love my wife. And the fact that she sees all of these mistakes, the stupid things that I do, the stupid things that I say, and she still loves me, makes me cherish her even more. Knowing that my wife will love me, my parents will love me, despite me. That I know that their love for me is not dependent upon me being perfect. How much more so when we look at God and he loves us despite us. Despite our sinful rebellion, especially at the beginning, we hated God. We were enemies of God and still he died for us and still he loved us and still he saved us. Not because we deserved it. Doesn't that just make our love for him grow? To go, how can I not glorify God in my life? more and more each day. And in the moments when I fail to glorify God and God says, you're not glorifying me, there isn't the shame of you are now no longer my child. It is, I am sorry, God, that I disobeyed you. Help me to glorify you even more. 
Help me to live for you and to love you with all of my mind and my heart and my soul. Let it all be for you so that when people see me and they hear the words that I speak, I can't help but see how glorious and how wonderful and how beautiful and how perfect you are and how much you love me despite my failings. You see, David suffered grievously and he brought shame upon his people. Christ suffered even more grievously and he brought glory to his Father and he brought love and salvation to his people. David was the anointed king, but Christ was way better, a way better Messiah. David is a type of Christ that just as David was restored to, to his rightful place, and this is the positive end of his type, just as David was restored to his rightful place on the throne of God's people, he is now the king, and he goes to the gate to speak to the people and be seen by the people. So Christ, right now, in this moment, is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has been restored He has been restored to his rightful place as king. Three days after his death, Jesus rose from the grave. And many days later, he ascended into heaven, being restored to his throne. And like David, Christ has been restored to the throne over God, his throne over God's people. He is in his rightful place. And no usurper can remove him, no matter how hard they try. And like David, Christ's restoration calls his people to come to him. Come to me. I'm sitting at the gate. Come to me. Come to me and glorify me. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And being found in human form, He, that is Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him every name that is, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Come to me and glorify me. And when you glorify me, you glorify my Father. Because of Christ's obedience on the cross, God the Father highly exalted him. God made him his king so that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess whether they like it or not. Jesus is the king all to the glory of god he's sitting at the gate and he's beckoning beckoning us to come to him and glorify him to praise him to honor him to do what he rightly does to give him what he rightly deserves as our king he doesn't say you know, your worship service has to be exactly perfect and everything needs to go smoothly for me to be able to accept your worship of me. And he says, come as you are. 
and worship me with all that you are and glorify me. That's what brings me glory. So not only come to him and glorify him, but come to him and receive his wise judgments. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know, this is Paul speaking to the church in Colossae. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our wisdom and understanding as God's people, as the church, our wisdom and understanding of who we are and what it means to be the people of God are not found in and of ourselves. Just look Look inside and find out who you really are. Uh Uh-uh. I've looked inside my heart and I praise Jesus that he's changing it. True wisdom and understanding is not found within us. It's only found at the throne of the king. It's only found at the throne of the king. How should we react to the temptation to sin against God? How should we respond to those around us who are treating us poorly? How do we control our thought life? How should we treat one another? How should we treat our enemies? How do we live a life of faithfulness? The answers are found at the seat of Christ. They're not found within yourselves. I have said, if I was God, no one in this world would be alive anymore because y'all make me mad at least once. And we're all in that place. That is not wisdom. Wisdom is found in Christ. Wisdom is found specifically wisdom to salvation. How are we saved? It is only through Christ. It is only found at the seat of Christ. If we're going to the things of this world, if we're looking inside of ourselves in order, hope, hoping in order that, that it will save us, In the end, we will find that we are just as lost as we were before and just as hell-bound as we were before. Because in Christ, Paul says, are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. You want to know what God has planned for your life? Go to Christ. How do we go to Christ? You see this book? There's a lot of wisdom in this book. Do you know why? Because it's the Word of God. Which is why we work through it verse by verse. We're not afraid of what the Bible says because we know that God's wisdom is found here. His understanding of salvation and faith and how we are to live is found here, how He desires us to be as His people. And so Jesus comes to the gate. He says, Come, find my wisdom, find the truth, and come to me. And then finally, he says, come to me to find the love and the salvation of the Father. John 3, 16 through 18. When everybody quotes John 3, 16, I always feel the need to go all the way to 18. Get the context of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order but in order that the world might be saved through him, that is through Christ. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Christ is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do we want to find and know the love of God? Don't look to the world. Don't look to culture or emotions or logic, or education, or money, or family, or friends, or joys. The love of God is not found in those things. Because guess what? They will one day all pass away. All of them. You say, well, I mean, I'll see my family. Well, yeah, but my kids are not going to be my kids in heaven. My wife is not going to be my wife in heaven. We're all going to be brothers and sisters together. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? It's kind of scary, I guess, for my kids. They're looking at me like, oh, that's really weird. The love of God is not found in these things, the relationships, the world, the money. They will all pass away. The love of God is found only in and through Christ God did not send him into this world, his son into this world, to condemn it because it was already condemned before he even showed up. God sent his son to save a world already condemned. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die the death we deserve, to take upon himself the wrath of the Father that we rightly deserved and opened the way for us as the people of God to be saved. What is the love of God? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. It's not to make you happy. Do you know that it's not God's goal to make you happy? He desires for us to be saved. And in being saved, we are in Christ, and in Christ is where we find joy, not happiness. Joy is not determined by circumstance, happiness is. So whether you have a good Mother's Day or not will depend on your, will determine how happy you are. But even when your children fail, or maybe don't do quite what they need to, you could still be joyful. Because joy in God is not dependent upon circumstances. When we gather together each Sunday morning, when we take the bread and cup every three weeks, we are proclaiming the glory and the salvation and the love of God for those who believe and trust in Christ. That's what we're proclaiming. We proclaim that whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but is saved. We proclaim that they are not hated by God, those who believe and trust. They are not hated by God, they are loved by God. We proclaim that Jesus is our King, that He is worthy of our worship and glory and honor, which is why we say this is an exclusive table. If you are not a child of God, you cannot proclaim the glory of God through that. It's nothing but drink and bread. Oh, that's nice. 
But for the believer, it is a reminder. This is a remembrance service. That God so loved the world that he condemned me, or he loved me who was condemned. He saved me who rightly deserved death. He took his punishment, my punishment upon himself, so that I would not have to because I could not pay that debt. We are remembering Christ's sacrifice through which the love and the salvation of the Father is given to us. Not by any works, not in any way that we can boast in it of ourselves, but only through Christ. And so there's a remembrance service, there's a memorial service, but not one that is sad, not one that is depressing. It is one to go, I am your child, and I praise you for loving me, for sending your son to save me. Thank you, God. Help me never to forget that my identity and who I am is found in you, and that as the King Jesus Christ, you are at the gate, and you are calling me to come to you each and every day. And if you have yet to come to Christ to believe, there's no better time than now. Put your faith and trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Call Him and make Him in your hearts your King. The most precious thing to you, the one you would live for, the one you would die for, the one that you find your most joy in. And so... uh, As a church, as we remember together, as we grab the cup and the bread and we sit down and we take it together, let's find joy in this time. Let's remember what he did and let this be a worship service. This specific moment, a time of worship and glorifying him for what he did for us and what he's doing to us. Amen? So when you are ready, go ahead and make your way to the table, have a seat, and then we'll take it together as a family.